a strict and particular Baptist uh, background while they're just putting the slide up. And I just want to say that um, you won't... I'll do this for you, see, because actually the first time that I preached, I actually did preach in a pulpit. But this one is a short pulpit compared with the one that I preached in. If you can imagine a pulpit suspended somewhere where that says one Lord, one faith and one baptism, that was my first sermon. So what they did is that they gave me the opportunity and then they send you in this box, which is a little bit like that, sort of coffin-like, and you go in it and they close the door behind you and you, you go in and preach. So the problem is that when I'm back in Chester Street is that it brings all sorts of memories back uh, which may need healing at some point. So if you were... Uh, but what I want to do uh, this evening is that um, I want to do it a little bit differently. Um, usually what I would do is preach a sermon. Normally uh, to the people that are around I would preach the gospel. Um, but actually what I'd like to do is tell you a story And the reason that I want to tell you a story is that I want to show to you that God can break through into any circumstances, into any... He can speak into any circumstances at any time. So if we do it like that, what I want to speak to you about is I want to speak to you about a man called Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Now, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, at the time that I began to know a little bit about him, might be described as an overweight Baptist minister in London over a hundred years ago. That's the young guy on the left over here, about 20. That's, uh, we've, we've given him a head, we've not given him a body, but believe me, he was overweight. And that's how he looked um, in a, around probably uh, in his 50s. So, and I'm in my 50s, so I look better looking than him. Do not argue. But actually, the more that I read about him and the more I read about his sermons, the the more that I stand in awe of this man. And uh, just to give you an idea, he um, preached uh, to something like 4,000 people at each service on a Sunday for something like 38 years. First in New Park Street in London, then it was demolished and they built the Metropolitan Tabernacle. You can still see the facade of the Tabernacle at Elephant and Castle today. If you go there, the building behind it is newer, but it's still there. And he would preach to 4,000 people, sometimes three times a day. So can you imagine 12,000 people in a day? Now, I have enough with you lot. Can you imagine the burden that that he had? Actually, he's known uh, today as um, the greatest soul winner of the last century. And this is uh, uh, an engraving of him preaching uh, to thousands in the music hall. And just so that you know, just so that I can help you here, and I've got one of these little things that does that, that's him. Okay, so he is there. So, and that's him preaching at the music hall to, to thousands. He would see people responding to the gospel in their 10s, 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s. But I want to suggest to you that it was through unusual circumstances and, and through God speaking in unusual ways that this guy became a, a, a Christian. So how did it all begin? 
Well, uh, I don't know whether you can catch that on the map, but we can, we can survive. He was born uh, June the 19th. 1834 in Kelvedon in Essex. His mother, at the time that he was born, was only 19 years of age when she gave birth to Charles Haddon Spurgeon and uh, he was added to them at the age of 14 months. This is why I'm talking about circumstances. You listen to this. At the age of 14 months, he was taken to his grandparents to live in the village of Stanbourne. If you go on Stanbourne's website, the little comment that's at the bottom there is what you find on the homepage. And it's, again, just uh, you know, not far from uh, Colchester, that sort of area. So at 14 months, now can you imagine we've got some people having babies uh, in the church uh, today and thinking that in 14 months time you will give away your baby <laughs> well there you go so you can see what sort of background that this guy was being born now he would actually spend the following five years away from his parents having said that his grandfather was the reverend James Spurgeon and he was minister of Stanbourne Congregational Church and was married to uh, a lady uh, called Sarah. And although they were very loving and very caring people, he was away from his parents. He was away uh, from his parents. And it was while Charles was there and in his younger years that he actually became aware of books. In fact, his, his grandparents recorded that he was a little obsessive in regard to books. And we'll have to just believe them because he's not uh, alive, or they're not alive to be able to test that out. But apparently, his favorite book, which all children have, don't they, was an illustrated version of Pilgrim's Progress. And I don't know whether when you were young you did this, but when he went to bed at night... And, he, and they said to him, we will read you a story. It was this book that he went to every night and they were expected to go through it. Now, I know as a parent that what I've tried to do with both mine is read them a story at night. I've also tried to read them different stories at night. And it is extremely difficult because if you have those famous words, what story would you like? This sort of manky book that's been around for donkeys of years is wielded out and you have to go and read the same story. And you are so fed up of it that if you miss something out, they know the phrase that you've missed out. And this was a little bit of the background, except for Spurgeon, it was Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress. Such was the intelligence of this young person that the grandparents thought, what do we do with this guy that wants to know about Pilgrim's Progress? So they asked his auntie Anne whether she would visit on a regular basis and teach him to read, which she did. And he became uh, a reader at a very, very early age. So not only did he have the illustrated story, he moved on to uh, the proper written story of Pilgrim's Progress. 
And it was at that time that he was sent to school. How about this one, folks? Thinking about circumstances and all that sort of stuff. He attended a school for juveniles. So not a good start, huh? Away from his grandparents. Quite a bright kid. Away from his parents, sorry. Quite a bright kid, all that sort of stuff. And then sent to a school for juveniles. This doesn't bode well for his future, does it? In practical terms. Whilst a child, Charles did become, the, if you like, the recipient of an incredible prophecy. There was a guy called Richard Nill. And Richard Nill came round to, for lunch one day and was uh, with the grandparents, who of course we've said were preachers in the Congregational Church. We're not sure whether he went to preach there, but we know, we know that he attended the church and then came back home. And it was while they're sitting at the table having dinner or Sunday lunch that Richard Neal looked up at the young Spurgeon and prophesied over him. And Richard Neal said this. He looked at the child, looked at the grandparents and said this. He said, this child will preach the gospel and will preach it to multitudes. No pressure then, Charles. But can you imagine that? You know, that sort of thing. And and you're thinking, well, how is this all going to pan out then? You know, with all that we've looked at. After five years at Stanbourne, Charles was actually taken back to his parents, John and Eliza Spurgeon, and uh, they moved to Colchester. Dad got a job as a clerk in a local coal merchant's, but he was also the pastor of Tolsbury Congregational Church, which is about nine miles, again, away from Colchester, that you can just about make out on the map. So you can imagine, again, now we've moved him back into his family thing. Money was tight. He was a pastor and a clerk. So he was into that background, again, that we we visit him. By the time he got back, mom and dad had been busy. There were three other children to join him. And I don't know why they didn't send the other children away, that they only sent Charles away. And we don't really know. But by now, there were three other children, James, Eliza, and Emily. At at 10, Charles attended Stockwell House School. At 14, he attended St. Augustine's Agricultural College in Maidstone. I don't know why. I mean, this was a guy that was obsessed with books, reading, and that sort of stuff. We send him over to be... Maybe they thought, if he doesn't pursue this career, then we can find him a job as a farmer. I don't know. At 15, he attended another school in Newmarket. You think of this. But was sent by his parents as a part-time teacher so that he could bring income into the family home. At 15. Not far off you, James. He was sent to work. Your dad's smiling because he thinks this is a great idea. But at 15, he did that. Actually, if you'd like to know, James, I was, I was still 15 when I earned my first proper full-time wage. And there are people in this room, believe it or not, that probably also worked at 15. Today, that sounds an absolute horror, but actually... That's what I did. I was 15 and a bit, went, and this is exactly what uh, Mr. Charles Haddon Spurgeon did. 
This is an interesting quote for the younger ones. His brother said, I kept rabbits, chickens, pigs and a horse, and he kept books. So you get an idea of what sort of guy he had. But something changed. Now, I don't know what you would be like on a very snowy morning. But on a very snowy morning, when Charles woke up in the morning and looked out of his window, Charles decided he would go to church. I would guess that the majority of you might... Well, we'll think about it. But Charles did not. But what he did is this. He asked the question, can I get to my normal church? And he said, no, I can't get to my normal church. So what I will do is I will try and find a church that is local. And he turned down a side street and he came to a little tiny primitive primitive Methodist church. It may have looked something similar to this. We don't know. It's been well knocked down. But what he did is that on the snowy day and it was coming sideways at him, all that sort of stuff, he decided to give those big doors that you can see there, something similar to that, a push. Now, I don't know what your expectations are when you get into church, but sometimes when you get into church, it can put you off when you just get in there, can't you? So I want you to imagine that he's got up, he's determined to go to church. He's managed to get himself to a church and he pushes the doors open and what he does is find that it's freezing cold and there's just sort of 12 to 15 people in there. The majority of us would probably think, I'm in the wrong place. Not only that, the 12 or 15 were just sitting there, just like you. They were just sitting there. And Charles decided that what he would do is that he wouldn't engage with the 12 or 15. He'd go and sit up in the gallery. The old ones now nod. So he goes and sits up in the gallery. And he can't work it out because as he's sitting there, nobody's doing anything until he susses it. The reason that the 12 and 15 are sitting there is that there's no preacher, a little bit nearly like us this morning. They're sitting there because there's no preacher turned up and they don't quite know what to do. So they must have made what I call a silent agreement between them. And I don't know how whether this is because so they drew straws or, or you know, the good-looking one you know, got up to preach, which would be David Simpkins, or something like that, you know, something of that ilk, I don't know. But in their silence, in their silence, a thin, gaunt-looking man, which actually proved later to be the local shoemaker, walks out from the twelve and into the pulpit. Spurgeon, looking down from the gallery, records this. He said, I thought him a little stupid and in need of instruction. (laughs) Be careful what you think about your preachers. (laughs) He asked the congregation to turn to a text. This was his text. 
We've given it you in the King James Version just exactly as Spurgeon received it himself. His text was Isaiah 45, verse 22. He said, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. Spurgeon said this, He did not pronounce the words right or speak correctly. And he had not got a Wolverhampton accent. Okay? So, so, this is it. so Spurgeon has just what circumstances. You see, all his life, it appears that circumstances are not working in favour of this man. But this thin shoemaker, cobbler, began. And he said, this is... Um, this is his sermon. I'm going to give you his sermon. I won't do it in his accent, but we'll have a go. He said, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now, looking don't take a great deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger A man needn't go to college to learn to look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. He continued. But the text says, look unto me. Aye, look unto me. He did this in a broad accent, by the way. He said, many on ye are looking at yourselves, but you ain't no use in looking there. You'll find no comfort there. No. Look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look to me. Someone here out there say, we must wait until the Spirit's working or until I feel something. You have no business with that. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. Look unto me, I am sweating great drops of blood for ye. Look to me, I'm hanging on a tree for ye. Look at me, I'm dead and buried for ye. Look at me, I rise again. I ascend to heaven. Look unto me. I am sitting at the right hand of the Father. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me. Look unto me. That was it. That was the sermon. So you thought you were getting an hour, didn't you? That was it. That was the sermon. 
Except that what Spurgeon didn't realise is that he'd been spotted. Because actually, what I started off by saying to you was that what happens is that the, the pulpit is sometimes a little bit raised. So here we are in a raised pulpit and Spurgeon would be somewhere on his own in the gallery like that. And the man from the pulpit looked up into the gallery, straight into Spurgeon's eyes, I'm going to look at you, Anne, and straight at, straight at Charles Spurgeon and he shouted this. He didn't say Anne, he said, young man, so I better do it to Phil, hadn't I? <clears throat> Okay, let's do this again. He looked and he said, old man, yes. Okay, I'll look at you, Richard. You're young, okay. He said, he looked at Spurgeon from the pulpit up to the gallery and he said, young man, you look very miserable. And he continued and he said this. He said, and... You will always be miserable. Pointing his finger at him from the pulpit. He said, you will be miserable in life and miserable in death. If you do not obey my text. And then lifting up his skinny arms, he shouted at the young man, look to Jesus, look, 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 and live. Spurgeon says this. He said, I saw at once a way to salvation. I know not what else that he said. I was possessed by one thought. I had been waiting to do 50 things. But when I heard that one thing look, I looked and I looked and I looked and I looked until I looked my eyes away. And he said, there and then in the, cl- the cloud was gone. The darkness rolled away and that moment I saw the sun in that one moment. He said, I thought I could have sprung from my seat in which I sat and called out to the wildest of those Methodist brethren, do you not know I've been forgiven? I'm forgiven. I'm a monument of grace, a sinner saved by blood. But I thought I better not. Poor chap. There's loads of us have been to church like just wanting to do it at once. He said, In my spirit I saw the chains that bound me broken into pieces. I felt that I was an emancipated soul, an heir of heaven, a forgiven one, accepted by Jesus, plucked out of the miry clay, out of a horrible feat, with my feet on a rock, and my goings established for the rest of my life. And that one moment, on a snowy day, in a bum chapel, 
with a bum preacher sitting in the wrong place became the, the turning point of Charles Haddon's Spurgeon's life. Now, you think that you've got something to offer that is worse than his. And I say this to you. This is the same God. This is the same Saviour. And if you too look to Jesus, you too can live like Spurgeon lived. You can look. You can live. He looked to Jesus. It was December 1849. You can shout out, my sins are forgiven. My life is built on a rock. My going established. But I want to challenge you with exactly the same words as a skinny cobbler from Newmarket. Will you look and live? Will you look and live? So how do you look to Jesus? Well, Isaiah 45, 22 in the good old King James Version says that you can look to me and, and be saved. You can look to Jesus tonight and you can become part of his family. You can make the same move that Spurgeon moved. You can look at Jesus and, and see the Son and you can become part of his family we can lead you through that tonight. You don't have to walk out of this place without living. You can know life and all its fullness. We can do that right now. We can do that later. You can become a part of his family. So you can look and you can be saved. But also, you can look. Because maybe, unlike Spurgeon, you haven't got a mother and father who are pastoring a church, or grandparents that have pastored a church. You've not ever been given Pilgrim's Progress to read when you couldn't read. You're not obsessive with books and all that sort of thing. So you think, well, when you're asking me to look, I don't know what I'm looking at. <clears throat> well, what we can do, is that we can help you to look. We can take you through some stuff where there's no pressure whatsoever. We can say, okay, just come and ask and say, well, I'd just like to have a look at this Jesus thing. Would you tell me a little bit more about it? We can do it in a course. We can do it on one-to-one. -one. We can show you a film if you wish. We can show you anything in any format that you would like to think about, we can help you to look at Jesus. But I just finish with those same words. Don't not look. <laughs> Don't not look, please. Look and live. Do you know why we're baptising people tonight? Because two people looked and lived.